Anyway, I've got a question for you this morning. What is the key to make... It sounds like a Christmas cracker joke, but it's not. What is the key to making an electric lamp work? Yeah, how do you make it work? Yeah, you plug it in, don't you? Plug it in. It's not, not, a, not a trick question, not rocket science. You plug it in. Make it work. How do you make an electric fan work? You plug it in. You've got to connect it to something. Does it matter? I said doesn't. Does it matter what you connect it to? Of course it does. Of course it does. You've got to connect it to a socket. You've got to connect it to the right thing to get the right result, don't you? My title this morning is Connected to What? You and I are designed with great intent by God, and we are very, we're amazing creations. Do you think it matters what we are plugged into? Of course it does. It absolutely matters what we are plugged into. How many of you have seen an electric fan work that is plugged into an apple? No, I don't get potatoes. Apples. It doesn't happen, does it? Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But often in our lives, we plug into all sorts of things that we were never designed to plug into, and then it doesn't work. And we wonder why. Now, some of you are going to sit there, and by the time I finish this message, you're going to say, boy, he was a bit brutal. Well, that's all right. Suck it up and have a conversation with it afterwards. If I can generate a few conversations, I've done a good job today, okay? And, um, yeah, that's enough said. John chapter 15, this is, the last, this is the last time for a while I'm preaching from John chapter 15. We've got a new uh, theme for this year, and we're going to kick off with that next weekend, but I want to pull a few loose ends together. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 5 say, I am the true grapevine, And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the grape vine, or I am the vine, and you are the branch. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Just in case you haven't understood the last year of John 15, I'm going to play a little video clip that pulls it all together for you. It's not... It could be slightly more complete, but hopefully it'll help you. Do you want to roll that for me, guys? It would be awesome. Thank you. Today we're going to be looking at the vine. This is an image, a central image that Jesus uses in John 15. I really think it's the heart of the whole gospel. And so... Um, The first thing I want to do is uh, I'm going to draw a picture of a hand. This picture represents God the Father, because really the vine is all about the Father. Because Jesus said the Father is the vine dresser, 
And so we're going to put inside of the Father's fingers a seed. And the Father plants this seed, which is the kingdom of God, into the soil. And then the sun comes out and, and the rain gives the energy and this vine grows. And then the Father sets guide wires up. You know, the Father is working all along the way to help this vine grow. Eventually the vine grows and the sun comes and the rain comes and blossoms come and the fruit is born on the vine. Sometimes the Father has to prune and take off some branches. But here we have this picture of growth and vitality. And what we really have going on here in John 15 is this picture of the Trinity. We have the Father and we have the Son, Jesus, who is the vine, which is really this picture of Israel. It's a carryover from the Old Testament. But then we have the Spirit everywhere. The Spirit is the sun. The Spirit is the rain. As the rain falls down onto the vine, giving life and water and baptism, if you will, the Spirit soaks down into the roots, and the Spirit then becomes the actual sap that grows up through the vine and out through the branches and to the clusters of fruit. And really what this is about is how disciples make fruit of the Spirit. And the, the, the sap comes out into the fruit, and it's really God's love. That's the purpose of the whole vine. It's really about making wine, the wine of God's love. Because what God the Father wants to do is He wants the whole world to know about God's love. And so we see we have the world over here that is looking at the vine. And the overflow of the vine is God's love making the world happy with the love of God. That is the whole purpose, and that's the beauty of this. And so this is the overflow of the vine into the world, and that's the point of discipleship. So let's look at this thing about being a disciple. What? How do we do this? How do we be in the vine? A lot of times we think that it's our job to produce the fruit of the Spirit, but that's not it at all. Our job is to focus on being connected to the sun, to the vine. Our relationship with Jesus is what it's all about. Because all throughout John 15, Jesus says uh, two key words. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you. Abide in me and I will abide in you. And all throughout John 15, uh, John 13 through 17, we have this indwelling of God. What the Greek word is the perichoresis. We have the Father indwelling the Son. We have the Father and the Spirit indwelling one another, and the Spirit indwelling the Son, and the Spirit which is flowing through all of it, and the Son indwelling and abiding in the disciples, which is the overflow of God's love as we indwell the world, and the Spirit indwells the world, and it's all flowing together. It's interconnected. It's what we call perichoretic power. It is the power of God's love in communion with the world. There we are. So if you didn't uh, understand a word I said the last 12 months, you just got it there. So sometimes visual helps, doesn't it? I realised while it was playing that some of you probably aren't listening because you're vegans or vegetarians and I just named my cows. So I apologise if I offended you there. Don't really, but anyway. Here's the deal. You're connected to something or somebody. You are connected to somebody or something. You are. By default, you are. The question is, connected to what? 
What are you connected to? Who are you connected to? That's the question. We're sitting in a church with a bunch of uh, Christians, believers. The answer is probably going to be, well, I'm connected to Jesus, aren't I? Well, are you sure? Would be my answer. Are you sure you're connected to Jesus? That would be the ideal. I'm connected to Jesus. But are you sure you're connected to him? Are you connected to him or... Is it just a word that rolls off your lips because it's convenient and you've professed to be a believer of Christ, so it's convenient to say, no, no, I'm connected to Jesus. Well, I think near the start of a new year is a great time to do a life audit and to actually look at the evidence of our life because despite what the the words we say, the evidence of our life tells a story. And it's very easy to say, I am connected to Jesus. He is my purpose. He is my reason. But what does the evidence of my life say? If I was to do a life audit, or if we were to show a life audit this morning, I would ask you to do it on three areas of your life. And in fact, if you've got a pen, write these down, because I think you should go home and do it. I would ask you to audit your life on time, on talent, and on treasure on time, on talent, and on treasure. And look at the evidence of those three areas of your life because the evidence will tell a story. It just may not be the story you think it would tell. If I was to look at the evidence on my time, I would go through my diary. And I'd go, how much of my diary, whether it's written or not, how much of my diary actually has a focus on the one that I'm connected to? Does it even present in my diary? Or is it just a good thought? I would go with talent. I would start to ask myself the questions about my purpose of life and about the skills and the unique set of skills that I've been given. And I would ask the question, do these skills, where where are these skills, where is my purpose focused at and focused for the kingdom of God? And look at the evidence and see what comes up. And thirdly, I'd look at treasure. Where does my money go? What does my money do? Where's my money focused? Because again, that will tell a story. What would the evidence say that you are connected to? What would the evidence say that I am connected to? Or who would the evidence say that I am connected to? It's worth doing an audit. Time, talent, treasure. Matthew 7 is a um, really, really scary passage. And it starts off with the, from verse 21, it starts off with that whole bit about, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says, because I did not know you. But a little bit further down, it says, everyone who hears my teaching and applies it to his life or her life can be compared to a wise man who built his house on an unshakable foundation. When the rains fell and the flood came with fierce winds beating upon his house, it stood firm because it had a strong foundation. But everyone who hears my teaching and does not apply it to his or her life can be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. When it rained and rained and the flood came, with wind and waves beating upon his house, it collapsed and was swept away. I like the last sentence. By the time Jesus finished speaking, the crowds were dazed and overwhelmed with his teaching. 
If you hear and do, you're wise. According, if you hear the word of God, if you hear the truth of God and do, you are wise. You are building on a solid foundation. If you hear the truth of God, the word of God, and you do not do, you are unwise, building on a sandy foundation. Now, I don't know about you, but I think you're better not to know than to know and not do. Does that make sense? Because if you know and don't do, you kind of live in fear that you know what you should be doing, but you're not doing it, waiting for the calamity to come that you know will come because you're not doing what you should be doing. Does that make sense? So there is a security in knowing as long as we do. But I think we fool ourselves all the time. In fact, I think we lie to ourselves more than anybody else. That often we say we know and we say we do, but the reality is we do know, but we don't do. And it's tough to be honest with ourselves sometimes. But here's the deal. We are in a spiritual battle. And it's a serious battle. It has serious consequences. You might not feel it all the time. You might not know what's going on all the time. But we have an adversary, Satan, the devil, and he has one thing in mind and one thing only, and that is to draw you away from God. One thing in mind, and that is to snap your connection to the vine. That is his whole agenda. If he can appear to play nice in order to get his result, that is what he will do. He is not nice. He is, and I'll read in a moment, the father of lies. And he will use any tricks he can as long as it is drawing you from God. Our naivety to the battle that we are part of means that we go backwards. We are in a battle. It's a serious battle. It's a spiritual battle. It's a battle that's been won, but we need to be aware of it and leaning into the things of God, and not only with our token value speech, but with our lifestyle, the way we live. We've got to be on guard all of the time. John eight forty four says, this is Jesus speaking and the first part of it, I'm not saying to you, so don't panic. Uh, it says, for you are children of your father, the devil. I'm not saying that to you. And you love to do evil things. Some of you might love that. He, has a, he was a murderer from the beginning. This is Satan. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is totally consistent with his character, for he is the father of lies. In other words, the devil's agenda is to appear to be wonderful with a real sinister agenda underneath. And that is to break your connection with God. He knows what's at stake. There's at least three lies that I think many believers have bought into and are held captive by. At least three lies. And the wider world just embraced them fully. But I don't know how different it is inside the church. I think we've embraced them as well. And it needs some correction. And we need to think about it. 
the, the effect of our, these lies on our connection with God will ultimately break the connection, will ultimately cause Jesus not to be the Lord of our life and these other things to be the Lord of our lives. And I think these are the three lies. Number one, humanism. There will be more, but this is three. There will be more than enough for today. Number one, humanism. Number two, consumerism. And number three, syncretism. Humanism, consumerism, and syncretism. Do you agree? You're sitting there going, I don't even know what they are. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. We're in a spiritual battle, and we've got to be aware of what's going on. It is a serious battle that we are in. Don't be fooled. You are in it. I am in it. Everybody is in it. And the devil loves to substitute things. He will substitute truth, capital T, for flavor of the month, which we would hear as being truth, little t, from our society and from the world that we live in. He will substitute things, and he is crafty. He will substitute things without us even knowing sometimes until it's too late. If a uh, if you're sitting here right now and you're going, oh, well, I've got no problems with that. I don't have to be worried about that. Just as well, I'm good. I would say you're in more danger than anybody else in the building. Because the devil is a liar and he's subversive and he's sneaky and he dresses things up to look like things that are not. Humanism. Humanism. This is um, out of the Humanist magazine. Humanism is a rational philosophy formed by science inspired by art and motivated by compassion. Affirming the dignity of each human being, it supports the maximization of individual liberty and opportunity consonant with social and planetary responsibility. It advocates the extension of participatory democracy and the expansion of the open society, standing for human rights and social justice. Free of supernaturalism, it recognizes human beings as a part of nature and holds the values by, um, sorry, and holds that part of nature and holds that values, be they religious, ethical, social, or political, have their source in human experience and culture. Humanism thus derives the goals of life from human need and interest and interest rather than from theological or ideological abstractions, and asserts that the humanity must take responsibility for its own destiny. Doesn't it sound good? It sounds lovely. It's a philosophy informed by science. Look, it's inspired by art, for goodness sake. It's inspired by art, and it's motivated by compassion. And it's all about the dignity of each human being. And it supports the maximization of individual liberty and opportunity. It sounds lovely, but it's a load of rubbish. It is absolutely contrary to the Bible. It denies the existence of God for a start, of any supernatural power. And in essence, it says, whatever seems right to you is right. It's actually... The more you think about it, the more ridiculous it is because it says the answer to every human dilemma is within the human itself. Yet they write books and books and books 
from humanist point of view because you haven't got the answers in you. Makes no sense, does it? Yet the answers are within the human to the problems. It says innately we are good. Well, that's exact opposite to the Bible that says we are corrupted by sin. Yet we embrace these things because it feels so good. This is really dangerous. This is the spirit of the age. We embrace it because it feels good. Oh, liberty. It's goodness. All the gender debates and stuff come out of this. And you know what worries me about this? Is I reckon that churches, Christians, have fallen for it hook, line, and sinker. How do I know? Because I watch Facebook. I don't write a lot on it, unless I'm bragging about my vegetables or my cows. <laughs> but I watch Facebook. And I watch Facebook, and I see people post things about their lives that are absolutely contrary to the truth of the gospel. This isn't judgmental. This is observatory, okay? Absolutely contrary to the gospel. And then a flood of Christians, particularly younger ones, all go, that's amazing. Good on you. Well done. You're so brave. What about saying... That's a lie of the devil, because that's the truth. That's a lie of the devil. You're confused. How about coming back to the scripture and saying, Lord, what is your truth on this matter, rather than what is popular opinion on this matter? And it affects every single one of us. Every one of us. I embrace, do I embrace Jesus as my Lord and Saviour, which means I must embrace everything that goes with that been a disciple of Christ, or do I think my opinion at the end of the day is the truth? Because if my opinion is the truth and Jan's opinion is the truth, we've got a rocky afternoon ahead of us. Just something for you to think about. Consumerism. Watch the screen. The average U.S. person now consumes twice as much as they did 50 years ago. Ask your grandma. In her day, stewardship and resourcefulness and thrift were valued. So how did this happen? Shortly after World War II, these guys were figuring out how to ramp up the economy. Retailing analyst Victor LeBeau articulated the solution that's become the norm for the whole system. He said, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. Advertisements and media in general plays a big role in this. Each of us in the U.S. is targeted with over 3,000 advertisements a day. We see more advertisements in one year than people 50 years ago saw in a lifetime. And if you think about it, what's the point of an ad except to make us unhappy with what we have? So 3,000 times a day, we're told our hair is wrong, our skin is wrong, our clothes are wrong, our furniture is wrong, our car is wrong. We are wrong, but it can all be made right if we just go shopping.
So we're in this ridiculous situation where we go to work, maybe two jobs even, and we come home and we're exhausted. So we plop down on our new couch and watch TV, and the commercials tell us, you suck. So you got to go to the mall to buy something to feel better, and then you got to go to work more to pay for the stuff you just bought. So you come home and you're more tired, so you sit down and you watch more TV, and it tells you to go to the mall again, and we're on this crazy work, watch, spend treadmill, and we could just stop. Consumerism will consume your life. Probably, if I'm brutally honest, this is a little bit of an Achilles heel for me. If I feel really stressed or overwhelmed or whatever, I think, I need to go and buy something. That'll make me feel better. But it's not the truth. The truth is I need to go and sit quietly with Jesus, and that'll make me feel better. But sometimes I think, oh, if it's shiny and black, I must have magpie DNA in me somewhere. You know, if it's shiny and sparkly. Consumerism will consume your life. It will consume your life. The last one is syncretism, which literally means synchronizing or syncretism is a union or attempted fusion of all the different religions, cultures, and philosophies. In other words, let's take everything and put it in one big melting pot And you just pull out the bits that are good for you, the bits that you're like, the bits that tickle your fancy, the bits that make you go, oh, I like that and I don't like that. It's all right. It's all in there. It's really a bit of an arm of humanism, isn't it? But but it's all in there and everything is okay. But this is not what the Bible teaches us. It's not. All of these things, syncretism particularly, is you make the truth f- and, and, and you make the truth fit your opinion. But that is truth with such a little T. Where scripture is truth with a capital T. And when we gave our lives to Christ and we um, accepted his offer of salvation, his offer of walking and doing life his way, and his offer of being a disciple of his, we signed up to truth capital T. Not little t, which means there is a higher authority than my opinion. There is a higher authority than your opinion. There is truth, capital T, we call it the Word of God, the Bible. And it's fascinating over history how people rubbish the Word of God, yet time and time and time and time again it proves to be true. Yet the temptation to move with the crowd to go the easy way, to go with the popular opinion is always there. We signed up. When we signed up, when we received Jesus, we signed up to capital T truth, not the flavour of the month. Where is your life being driven by the flavour of the month and not capital T truth? Time, talent, treasure and audit will be a great exercise. If Jesus is not our go-to, our intentional connection, our rock, our go-to place, then we are being led by the spirit of the age, by the father of lies. And can I suggest, if that is the case, our lives have been held captive by either humanism, consumerism, or syncretism. It affects every one of us. I really encourage you to do the audit and be brutally honest.
And I give one example. And I, I want to go a little bit controversial on that. I just want to rub you up, really, with the example. Yeah. I want to talk about tithing. Okay? Tithing. The word tithe means tenth. The whole principle of tithing is that one-tenth of our increase is given back to the Lord. It's not even given back to the Lord. It goes back to the Lord because it's his in the first place. Biblically, it is actually a test for us to see how we handle our finance, whether we are willing to give his tenth back to him. I think it's pretty good value. We give a tenth back to him. We have 90% left to do whatever we want with. Our tenth go back to him. It kind of pays for air and you know, a planet and all those kind of things. I think it's a good deal. You try and get the council or the government just to take a tenth off you, they won't have it. We're on a good deal with God. He says, just send a tenth back my way. That is cool. And, but what it does is actually it releases your finances and it releases you financially. It blesses our... It doesn't mean you never have a problem, but the blessing of God rests on the 90%, and I guarantee you the 90% will go further than the 100 did if you didn't give it. I've proved it time and time again. It's kind of like the children of Israel. Their sandals lasted longer, their car. But see, in a consumerism world, you don't want your car or sandals to last longer. Do you? No. Just had that thought right then. So tithing, here's the deal. Do we believe that God is the ultimate provider? Jehovah Jireh. Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. God my provider. The scripture teaches that God is the source. He is our provider. Your job is not your provider. God is the source. Your job is the channel on which God feeds through, okay? God is the provider. So if we believe that, then we should do finances his way, shouldn't we? Yet we say we lead, believe that, yet the statistics would tell me that many, 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 many of us do not do finances his way. So what's the deal? We either believe or we don't believe. We're either capital T or we're believing humanistically that actually we're the source. It actually comes from my work, from my effort, from my energies. That's humanism. Or, oh, I can't afford it because I've got to buy the latest bling, da-da-da-da-da. That's consumerism. Or just anything else, that's syncretism. But if we believe, then surely we behave in a certain way. If I believe that God is my provider, that he is the source of my finances or my resources, then surely I would do it his way. Otherwise, it's like taking a fan and plugging it into an apple and expecting it to work. So in essence, yeah, I'm about to rub you. If you don't tithe, you don't believe. If you do not tithe, according to the patterns and the principles of God, you, wow, it went really quiet. I felt the ear change. I felt you all clench. You... If you do not tithe, a biblical principle, which is not law, by the way, it's pre-law and the law and post-law, you do not believe. Ouch. <laughs> so you've got caught up in some other spirit of the age, but it's not discipleship. It's not capital T truth. I'm not judging here, by the way. I'm just provoking. 
Interesting, eh? So somewhere along the line, the father of lies has impacted our thinking and our behaviour is followed. So we are behaving little t truth, i.e. my opinion, not capital T truth, i.e. the principles of God. The book of Malachi says you have robbed me. You've robbed me of your tithes and your offerings. Two different things, by the way, tithes and offerings. Tithes are the 10% that goes back. Offerings is what we do. Do what you want with the offerings. People give to charities and stuff, go, I'm tithing. That's not a tithe, that's an offering. Tithe goes to the storehouse, the church. It has, biblically, always has, always will. Over and beyond that, outside of that is offerings, not tithes. But I'm going to help you on that this year because I want to see you liberated. I want to see me liberated more. Malachi says, you've robbed me of your tithes and offerings, but if you bring your whole tithe to the storehouse, you test me, God says. The only time in the scripture he says to test him, I will, pour, I will open heaven's doors and pour out on your life. That's not just referring to finances, that's talking about blessing of God, because there's more to life than finances. But it's interesting, and this is the example I've chosen, because I know money is close to us. We are close to money that it is so, so easy to be fooled. It is so, so easy to be drawn off track by the father of lies at the end of the day, the father of lies who shapes the spirit of the age, who shapes the humanist thinking, the consumer lifestyle, the um, syncretism, who shapes those things. But, but be aware, under it is a spiritual battle. The Bible tells us that we don't fight a battle against flesh and blood, but it's against powers and spiritual powers, spiritualities. We can't see them, but it's happening. And if I was really bold, don't know if I'm feeling that bold, I would suggest that probably every one of us in this room in some way, shape or form has believed a lie. And when you do the audit of your life, it might just reveal where that lie is. 1 Corinthians 15.58 So now, beloved ones, stand firm and secure. He's talking to the church here because he knows the way the devil will cause drift. He knows that our opinions will rise up. He knows our hearts get screwed up. He says, so now, beloved ones, so now, Activate Church, stand firm. Stand secure. Live your lives with an unshakable confidence. We know that we prosper and excel in every season by serving the Lord. Because we are assured that our union with the Lord makes our labour productive with fruit that endures. Go back to John 15. Fruit that endures only comes by genuine connection with the vine. Only comes through connection with the vine. I would ask you, to do a life audit. It's going to take a little bit of time. The easiest way with your finances is, you know, the old days you just went through your checkbook. But now you can just go online. That's easy. Tells the story. Your diary. 
or your average week? What, am I saying when I say that? Am I saying that, because you know, I've got a trade panel beating, am I saying that what I'm doing now is any more spiritual than what I was doing when I was panel beating? No, I'm not saying that, so don't hear that. I'm saying, what, what's, where's my life facing? Where's the purpose of my life facing? Where's my skills facing? Kingdom focus, kingdom purposed. Is Jesus my go-to guy? Or do I look everywhere else first? Because sometimes we do look everywhere else first. Be brutally honest. See, the beauty of a self-audit is you can be brutally honest. You don't have to tell anyone. You don't have to show anybody this. But if you're not brutally honest with yourself, you've simply set, set your opinion higher than the truth. And then straight away, what have we fallen into? Humanism, because it's all about me. It's all about I do this. I See, it's an insidious lie that'll try and get in everywhere. So do a, t- a life audit. Time, talent, treasure. And ensure that Jesus, make a real effort around this, ensuring that Jesus is our go-to. Spend time with him. Make choices that honour him. Think thoughts that honour him. I don't know what the inside of your head like. Mine is a mess some days. Sometimes the more I think, the more messy it gets. And if it's four o'clock in the morning, it's even worse. But I can try. (laughs) And I can ask God, help me with this. So can you. So can you. Spend time with him. Make choices that honour him. And think through, or think thoughts that honour him. Musicians can come if you'd like to, thanks. The only way to live truly free is in relationship with Jesus. It's the way we've been designed. Like the fan is designed to plug into the power outlet. Or the lamp is designed to plug into the power outlet. You're in my life, and lives are designed to plug into, in a sense, Jesus Christ. He is our designer. He is our creator. He is the one that knows how we work. He is the one who knows how we trip up. He is the one that knows everything. Yet his offer to us is even though you're broken and make a mess of things, I've put everything in place so that we can actually walk together in close unity and harmony. We call that salvation. Because the truth is we've all fallen short. We've all made mistakes. We've all done stuff which has actually caused this gap, this gulf between us and God and the only way that gap could be closed was by the Father sending his son, Jesus Christ, to make a sacrifice on a cross to pay the price for our wrongdoing. Jesus has done that. And now, Jesus says, if you can, or Paul says actually, if you confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, the connection will be restored. We'll start on this life journey together. Now, you might be sitting there this morning and going, yeah, but you just said all this stuff and I'm not doing that, so how can I be? Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Because here's the deal. You don't have to do anything to connect with Jesus except say, I will. Then he'll take our lives and he will start to shape our lives. And it becomes a beautiful picture as we walk with him and we journey with him, not only on this planet, but into eternity.